We head east three time zones to Hamilton, where we're joined from McMaster University on the line by Dr. Casey Scheibling, who, along with a couple of associates, has written a, a piece for theconversation.com entitled Canadian Dads Are Doing More at Home Than Before the Coronavirus Pandemic. Dr. Scheibling, Casey, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, let's talk about you and Kevin and Melissa and the project you're working on that produces your chat with us today. What have you three been up to? Uh, so starting a couple months ago, we were able to get a survey out that uh, surveyed about 1,200 Canadian parents about how the division of labor at home might have changed uh, during the pandemic compared to before it. So we compare reports of uh, what sort of housework and childcare tasks are being performed now um, compared to what was being performed right before the um, pandemic hit in March. Okay, we should probably mention to our listeners this morning, uh, Dr. Scheibling, that Kevin and Melissa are your colleagues on this program, on this project. Kevin Schaefer at Brigham Young University in Utah. Uh, Melissa Milkey at uh, U of T down the road in Toronto. You're in the Department of Sociology at McMaster University in Hamilton. What was the, the, the nub of the study? Was it comparing the previous levels of participation in household activities versus those uh, shall we say imposed upon us by the pandemic was that was that what you, the numbers you were after yeah essentially we approached this data um, with two competing expectations okay so on the one hand um, it, it's reasonable to believe that unequal divisions of labor at home may have been exacerbated by the fact that there's just so much more domestic work to be done and the fact that we our culture and cultural ideals tend to suggest that mothers will be taking on this work, um, that these unequal divisions will become even worse. Um, related to that is also that uh, many people have lost their jobs. Mm -hmm, sure. Um, and, and so the prioritization of fathers' paid work might take precedence due to gender pay gaps. Um, and so in that sense, we might have expected that the division of labor become even more unfair with mothers taking on even more work um, than fathers during this period. On the other hand, um, by having fathers either losing their jobs or working from home, we wondered if due to the fact that they're more exposed to family needs by being spending more time in the household, mm -hmm. that this would actually encourage them to take on a more equal share of housework and childcare tasks. And so based on our preliminary findings, we find some evidence for, for both of these hypotheses. But the overall um, picture is that most parents agree that the division of labor at home has become slightly more equal and that many fathers have increased their share slightly. Okay, so that's, uh, that is a positive. But Casey, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the numbers. If, if you can ballpark it for us on a percentage sort of, of way of saying things, for example, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, moms assumed, say, 70% of the domestic labor assignments, dads 30. And now that the pandemic has, has come along, and, and forced all of us to change, to pivot to new realities. Uh, could that number be 60-40? It certainly doesn't sound like it's 50-50. No, it's definitely not uh, moving towards an equal split. Um, what we find is that the majority of parents report that um, 
most tasks are roughly shared, but with mothers still taking on um, the majority overall. But what's interesting about the numbers that we do have is that um, there is a sizable minority of fathers who have increased their amount of time spent in these tasks since the pandemic. And that for, for these fathers who have increased their share, there's about twice as many than those who have decreased. So um, as a sort of related aspect of, of the study that's interesting to see is that very, very few Canadian fathers have actually decreased the amount of de- de- domestic work that they do. Well, and that's probably a good thing, too, especially under the circumstances you want. You would certainly hope that at, at very least people are going to pitch in and get the job done one way or another. Uh, now, did, right. did you narrow it down or did you, uh, in terms of the spectrum of activities that you were able to measure in terms of participation by parents, parents and fathers and moms and so on. Uh, did you break it down into types of activities or was this just sort of an overall participation level? Yeah, we break it down by task, which is interesting to see because we, we don't necessarily have the same patterns given on what tasks we're looking at. Uh-huh. So in, ter- in terms of housework, we look at house cleaning, after meal cleanup, shopping, laundry and preparing meals. And in terms of childcare, we look at enforcing rules, organizing family life, playing with children, monitoring them, providing physical care and emotional support. Okay, so let's uh, let's take a look at the the uh, physical labor first, and we'll deal with the kids in a second. How about that housework? Just generally keeping the clay, the place kind of cleaned up and spiffy. Right, right. And so uh, some of the the most interesting finding with respect to housework that we find. Um, is actually around shopping, which in the survey has to do with doing essential shopping for groceries and household goods. Okay. And we find that this is the one that there was the largest increase of fathers doing more of. And this was an interesting interpretive puzzle for us to think about for a little bit. Um, Shopping, on the one hand, tends to be something that mothers did the majority of, like most other housework and childcare. Um, And it's also, as an activity, something that is associated with uh, women and femininity for the most part. So we're like, hmm, why is it the fact that, that shopping is the one that dads are really contributing more to? Hmm. And one of the interpretations that we're working with is the fact that unlike other housework tasks, shopping involves leaving the house and entering public spaces where one can be exposed to the virus. Right. So shopping is now imbued with a certain degree of risk. And research suggests that fathers... Um, tend to view themselves as protectors of their families and family well-being, um, even at the expense of their own personal health. So that might be part of the reason why fathers may be opting to go shopping and face this risk, because they rather sacrifice their own health potentially um, as, as, as a form of protection of their family's well-being. And because mothers are overwhelmingly responsible for family life, um, they might view it having more negative consequences if moms were to get sick rather than dads. That's very interesting, Casey, because I thought, you know, and I don't argue with any of, of your findings, but I would have thought that uh, somewhere in that mix, of course, the the need to to sort of take the hit if there's going to be a virus hit in the family, I'll take that and leave everybody else in the family safe and okay. But I, right. I thought maybe 
just maybe the another aspect to uh, the male participating in elevated levels of shopping might just have to do with the, and, and again, leaving the house is critical to my point too. It might just have something to do with escaping for a few hours, Casey, just to get out of the house, go out, f- purchase those necessary supplies, schmooze a little uh, at the supermarket with whoever happens to be there to just schmooze with, and then go back home. In other words, it represented an opportunity to uh, uh, for a little relief from that uh, domestic isolation. Yeah, you know what? I think that's also a very good interpretation, and especially for fathers who are, are perhaps unused to taking on all of these additional tasks and, you know, having being around the children all day, having them interrupting their Zoom calls, et cetera. Right. Potentially, yeah, leaving the house is, you know, it, it could be because they want to, you know, expose themselves to the risk, or it could be, like you say, the fact that, you know, they need a break from all of this, which poses some some complications when we're, we're talking about patterns uh, with respect to gender inequality, let's say. Yeah, let's. But let's now let's talk about the other half of uh, your big focus, that one was uh, on the household uh, tasks and, and child care, mm-hmm. clearly, was the yeah. other half of the major parenting burden. And your findings, or at least you began with the premise, you three, that moms typically... Uh, bear or carry most of the child care burden. Yeah, yeah. And so compared to housework tasks in our data, uh, we found that respondents were even more likely to report equal sharing of child care during the pandemic. Um, many of them reported slight increases in equal child care task sharing. Um, but some of these increases were in tasks that, that fathers are already traditionally involved in, like playing with children and enforcing rules. Yep. So in that sense, gendered meanings for childcare tasks may not have changed along, alongside these shifts. Um, but overall, mothers and fathers agree that dads have slightly in, increased their parental contributions. Um, and this was especially true for fathers who lost their jobs. They spent substantially more time in childcare. Um, which is logical to think, you know, that they're spending more time at home because they lost their jobs. But it's always interesting and important to see that bear out in, in the data itself. A pleasure to have Dr. Casey Scheibling with us. He is one of a team of three sociologists who have uh, published a paper uh, recently at theconversation.com entitled Canadian Dads Are Doing More at Home Than Before the Coronavirus Pandemic. And Casey, we were talking about uh, the, uh, the the interruption uh, the pandemic has created in, in everyone's life. And of course, with the lockdown that we've had to endure, uh, most of us at least, uh, Talk to us a little bit about your findings vis-a-vis moms and dads, because you've talked about how dads have sort of picked up the ball and run with it a little bit better on the uh, just sort of maintaining uh, energy and momentum around the household with respect to cleaning and and keeping the joint ship shape. But in terms of child care, dads have uh, also upped their game a little bit in terms particularly of just participating in the process. However, and this is where it gets interesting because uh, certainly we're starting to see uh, some rather stunning job loss numbers. So talk to us about, if you can, about what you found, what you three found when you started digging into households, Casey, in which one or the other parent have indeed lost their work and therefore the responsibility for household earnings has now fallen on the shoulders of the other person, whichever that may be. Mm-hmm, yeah. 
So one of the uh, expectations around that was that, uh, especially if if yeah, a mother lost a job, that she would probably be shouldering more of the domestic work due to the prioritization of, of father's paid work, um, if, if now that is the only source of income. Okay. One of the things that we did find, though, with, with respect to childcare, is that um, whether fathers or mothers who have lost their jobs um, in those scenarios, fathers did do substantially more time in childcare mm-hmm. um, compared to those who had jobs that, that didn't have any sort of transition. Um, similarly, with with fathers who transition to working from home, we find that that they increase their participation as well. Um, but to speak to the first part of your question about comparing mothers to fathers, um, one thing that we we find that's that's interesting and common to a lot of survey research. Um, is that there are gender differences in perceptions of how much fathers have contributed or increased their contribution. So we do see that not necessarily that, that mothers and fathers agree on the perception of how much fathers have, have increased their, their time spent in these tasks. Uh-huh. Um, and so in that, in that respect, um, it's possible that fathers may be overestimating the amount that they've increased and potentially mothers may be underestimating um, the amount that that they have uh, that fathers have increased in terms of their contributions. Can we talk a little bit about the reality of of uh, what's going to happen? On, now we're projecting, uh, but mm-hmm. we've, we've talked a lot of, about your findings, and clearly yeah. you and your teammates uh, at the U of T and at Brigham Young have done quite a lot of homework prior to publishing this. So let's talk. Let's extrapolate a little and, and wonder aloud, Casey, about school this fall, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because if school, uh, you know, I mean, various jurisdictions jurisdictions are approaching this differently. Here in BC, for example, we hope to have kids back in school uh, uh, on some, uh, at least a couple of days a week. But I don't know that, for example, British Columbia is planning on everybody's there Monday to Friday, nine to five, that whole thing. I don't think we're planning that, although some uh, Alberta, I know, for example, is trying to pull that off. In the event that this does happen, uh, and and there is uh, there's not that kind of firm schedule, so you can't you know uh, release the kids every morning to go to school, and and somebody's got to be around because they're they're around too much. Is mm-hmm. that is that invariably going to fall on the shoulders of the moms? I mean, if, if we were to make a projection based on a lot of existing research, I think we could probably expect that those responsibilities around schooling would fall onto moms. Um, research shows that parent-teacher associations um, or even just daily contacting of what goes on at school, like moms tend to be the, the first line of communication. Okay. Um, and so for that task specifically, I, I think that's actually a paper that we're going to work on to see if, you know, if there's actual shifts towards egalitarianism in homeschooling. Um, the expectation there is that there, there probably isn't because um, a lot of the, the groundwork for how to help kids with homework and how to communicate with, with teachers in schools, this is overwhelmingly done by, by mothers in Canada compared mm-hmm. to uh, fathers. And in terms of, of the longer-term impacts, I mean, our, our study that we, we wrote about in the conversation is really providing some preliminary baseline data about what's going on right now. But sure. there's going to be 
a need to, to see if any of these changes really stick. That's going to be the most important thing. Um, and so uh, being able to look at the types of outcomes that are connected to these changes in terms of things like marital quality, parent-child relationship quality, um, and different indicators of mental health are going to be really important to determine because it's one thing to see that people are spending more time doing particular domestic tasks, but we don't know all that much yet about what that means to parents, whether fathers feel fulfilled in doing more childcare and housework or if it's something that totally stresses them out. Interesting. Now, the totally stresses them out part is where I want to pick that part up because I wanted to just bring it back to the present, even though the present is summer holidays. Let's go back another month and, and talk about homeschooling because, boy, you hear certainly quite quite the spectrum of mixed reaction from parents when you start talking about homeschooling as some kind of enjoyed it because it, it involved uh, more opportunity to learn about what their kids are learning. And in some cases, mm-hmm. it was quite a surprise. Others, uh, parents are just pulling their hair out and going cross-eyed crazy because this is just too much. How are dads uh, stacking up in the helping out with the homeschooling department so far? Right. Like that, it's going to be a really interesting question to explore that we haven't looked at in too much detail yet. One thing that I can say is from my my own individual work, I've been doing on online interviews with new fathers right now okay. about their their gender expectations around becoming a parent and how that's affected their emotional well being. And in these interviews that that weren't based on what's happening with the the pandemic, um, inevitably the pandemic came up organically in every conversation. Of course. And one thing that I noticed is that um, based on child's age there tends to be a very different view of how being at home, helping with, with either childcare or schooling tasks, um, how that's received based on how old the child is. So for some of the, the recent fathers that I've spoken to who have newborn children, a lot of them are thinking, oh, well, this is in many ways kind of great because I'm at home. I didn't have to use vacation days to see all of these, you know, first moments with my child. Right. Whereas those who have elementary school children and are, are forced now to, to see you know, what's going on in their day-to-day lives and, and provide educational opportunities and help with homework, et cetera, uh, they tend to, to sound a little bit more overwhelmed and stressed out about these, these new responsibilities that have transitioned into the home. Interesting stuff. And of course, it's highly, highly possible that a lot of those responsibilities are going to be transferred again uh, come mm-hmm. September. It's highly unlikely, for at least from where I'm sitting, uh, that all of Canada is going to go back to school the Tuesday after Labor Day. Casey and life is just going to settle right back down. I don't see that in the cards at all. How about you? <laughs> Nor do I. <laughs> exactly. Well, you mentioned another paper that may be forthcoming as a result of this work, a kind of springboarding you into more. When that paper comes out, can you let us know and we'll do this uh, one more time? Yeah, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. It was great to talk to you this morning, uh, Casey, and uh, I'm going to recommend the piece to our listeners. It's at theconversation.com. Our guest, Dr. Casey Scheibling, and two of his colleagues have written a piece called Canadian Dads Are Doing More at Home Than Before the Coronavirus Pandemic. It's not exactly a gold star, Casey, but hey, we're doing all right. It's it's a thumbs up. You You could put it that way, right? Yeah, that's how I would put it. Some cautious optimism. There you go. Thanks very much for doing this. We appreciate hearing from you and the opportunity to speak with you. And as the next one arrives, let us know, please.
There's Dr. Casey Scheibling at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. The other two teammates uh, at Brigham Young in Salt Lake City and the University of Toronto. It's a pleasure to welcome Justin Ling to the program this morning. Mr. Ling is a freelance investigative journalist joining us from Montreal to talk to us about a column that he wrote recently for Vice.com. It's about the We scandal. And here's the headline. Justin Trudeau's billion dollar scandal is a story of power branding and charity and it goes on to to include this line in justin trudeau we charity had a prominent booster in we justin trudeau had a powerful platform popular with young people the old you scratch my back and i'll scratch yours justin lane good morning welcome to the program hey good morning it's a pleasure to have you with us this onion just keeps getting peeled more and more and as each layer gets pulled back justin more and more information is revealed had you any idea when you took this story on and began digging and began to start peeling the onion how deep it was and how complex each layer was going to be <laughs> unfortunately yes i did know um simply because i had i had helped with some investigations into the WE organization dating back about a year with, with online outlet Canada Land. So I was, I was familiar with their corporate structure a little bit. I was familiar with some of the criticisms about the way in which uh, they actually do service delivery in, you know, abroad. I was really familiar with how they, they, they worked with corporate clients to, you know, kind of weed their way into schools and how they used events like WE Day to help platform their advertisers. So it wasn't a huge shock to me to learn sort of the the intricacies of the really complex corporate structure. I think I was surprised the degree to which the Trudeau liberals had sort of married themselves so closely to the WE brand. You know, I can tell you that after Trudeau was first elected in 2015, one of the first events he did was was WE Day, you know, this big celebratory stadium-sized youth event it sort of mixes a concert with a day camp, um, but also there's, there's a lot of kind of you know words around self empowerment and social development and all sure. this. The prime minister, you know, a week after being elected for the first time, made a point of going and, and, and attending We Day. And I was there. I remember just how uncomfortable it felt. You know, it felt weird to see the prime minister doing an event like that with an organization that you know, had aggressively branded this event with a whole bunch of corporate clients and with a whole bunch of youth um, who were sort of, you know, hanging on to every word in a way that they wouldn't be in any other circumstance. Now, so, you, yeah, yeah. you mentioned that this was very shortly after his uh, re- being elected in 2015 with that majority government and a significant majority it was. So it sounds like pretty much a victory lap event, Justin. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some, some, some truth to that. Um, and you know he's attended We Days, you know, numerous times since being elected, and 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 since long before he was first elected. Um, you know, when he decided to run for the leadership of the Liberal Party, um, you know, he attended two We Days in rapid succession. He ended mm-hmm. up with a donation from Craig Kielberger, who um, is one of the founders of the We organization. Um, you know, he has been really closely aligned with this organization since his you know before he even fully went into politics. Um, and through all of that, the WE organization has got a huge amount of public money in part to run these WE Days. 
um, you know, $1.5 million around the Canada 150 celebration right. they got to run their own Wee Day, to attend the, can- to the, uh, the celebrations on Parliament Hill, um, you know, some $3 million through another uh, employment program. You know, they've become very close to the, to the federal government. Yeah, and you talk again in the subheader at the beginning of your story, uh, in Justin Trudeau, we charity had a prominent booster. In we, Justin Trudeau, had a powerful platform popular with young people, basically a solid, a rock-solid recruiting base for future liberal voters that he shamelessly went after from the days even before he became prime minister. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, these events were telling people to go sign up for the Liberal Party because they weren't. They are a little bit more subtle than that. I mean, so, you know, maybe people don't understand what, what we fundamentally is, right? Everyone thinks about it as this altruistic charity that you know, largely does development in Sub-Saharan Africa and right. South America and all this. Um, you know, but in, in reality, you know, they do that. There's, there's no doubt they do real good programming in the global south, but they also do a lot of domestic programming. They have least schools where they actually go in and they write a curriculum and they teach it to public school kids, private school kids, you name it. Mm-hmm. And of course, they also do these wee days to finance those things. They bring on these massive corporate donors. Now, everyone from Allstate Insurance Company to Valiant Pharmaceuticals to Dow Jones Chemical to Potash Corp. There's so many huge clients donate millions of dollars, and for that, they get access to, to the curriculum of We Schools. They get to put their executives on stage at We Day or have their branding all over it. Um, you know, they get to uh, slap the We logo on their in-store products, um, and, and We is very upfront with them. We sit them down and says, listen, if you put your money here, students will be more likely to think your brand is cool. Their parents will hear about it and are more likely to purchase your product. You know, literally, they're, they're, they're saying that if Allstate gives us a million dollars to co-brand our social development program in, 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 in We Day, mm-hmm. you know, students and families are more likely to go visit an Allstate agent. You know, like, what does Allstate insurance have to do with social development? I was going to ask so, you that. You know, yeah. So, you know, at the, at the core of all of this, it is... It, it is it's, they call it the halo effect. You know, if you come and give us money and you grace our stage and speak to our students, they're going to forever associate you with altruism, with corporate giving, with international development, with children empowerment, so on and so forth. And really, if you're the only leader, uh, the only federal party leader on stage doing that, you get a huge boost. It's undeniable. The, the prime minister should have absolutely thought, sat down and thought to himself, is this really appropriate? Is it really appropriate that I'm basically using my office, using my ties to this charity to go on stage and forever align my political brand with this organization and, and, you know, really send a message to these kids that it's Justin Trudeau's liberal party. That is really the only party that believes in social and, development, international and, development. And also, of course, by the way, also tacitly endorsing Microsoft and Walgreens and Allstate and yeah. all of these other corporate sponsors who participate mightily at, on the financial level in order to be literally associated with the stars that show up at these We Day events, including the Prime Minister of Canada. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and again, listen, you know, I think there was good reasons for doing all of these things. You know, I don't think it's, it's inherently nefarious. It's inherently about, um, you know, promoting yourself at the expense of all others. Right. You know, I think the prime minister believes in this. I mean, the, the prime minister spent many, many years advocating for Katimovic, the youth volunteer organization. And I think he channeled a lot of that passion once Katimovic got shut down into we. 
But this is also why we have the Conflict of Interest Act. This is why we have the Ethics Code. This is why politicians you know, should, should think to themselves, is this appropriate? And maybe it was appropriate up to this point. Maybe it was, okay, maybe the contract and the grants were small enough that we can kind of say, this is a little weird, but you know what? It's not a problem. His decision or his government's decision to award that $912 million contract are where things really went off the rails. You can't say to the public that there's nothing shady about giving. And, and of course, the Prime Minister does now acknowledge it. It was wrong to give we this, this huge pot of money. Um, you know, they would take away between 20 and $40 million of that program. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the fact that they even got to that point and nobody said, well, this is a real problem, I think it shows just the dangers of getting too close to organizations, whether they're corporations, whether they're charities, or whether they're somewhere in between. Justin Ling is on the line joining us from Montreal this morning, talking about the We Charity and an article that uh, he wrote, has uh, written recently for Vice. Uh, Justin, there's so much to unravel here. We don't have all the time in the world. Let's zoom in on the structure of We, uh, because, of course, there was a billion dollars, and close to a billion dollars in cash that was going to go their way, as you mentioned earlier, netting them somewhere between 20 and 40 million uh, operating expenses or operating fees. Uh, the structure of the charity and its corporate partners, uh, has they're all governed by boards of directors in Canada and the United States, but both boards here in, in, in Canada and in the States have resigned or completely turned over in the past few months. What was that all about? It's still totally unclear. You know, we know that of the the, uh, off the top of my head, about, I think, 14 or 15 board members in the U.S. and Canada, only about three or four remain. Even just getting that number nailed down is a bit sketchy. But, um, you know, board members have left suddenly. One day their name's on the website, the next day it's not. Mm-hmm. Some have made it very clear they were resigned. There's implications. Some were fired. Um, you know, it, it, one of the, the former chair of the board for the Canadian charity, um, you know, started calling attention to, basically started calling out we, saying, I don't really believe your numbers. Um, when it comes to you know the, the the impact you brag about in in your development programs in Africa, um, so there's something really wrong there. And 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 you know what really gets me is that I started asking questions. So like for example, you know normally organizations you know have their their fiscal year. It's not necessarily a calendar year. That's it might true. end on March 31st. Yep. It might end on. Um, they change theirs four times in the last decade. That's really, really, really unusual. It makes it really hard to actually assess a company's or a charity's financials. We came back to me and said, oh, that was the board's decision. Well, the board resigned within about six months of that decision. So, you know, that's really, <laughs> that's really beguiling to, to begin with. Um, you know, and, and, and what's more, uh, part of their explanation was, okay, well, we needed a younger, more diverse board, you know, to give us a different kind of, uh, you know, point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, the former chair of the Canadian board is a really prominent activist who was drummed out of the Canadian military for being a lesbian. Um, you know, you want to talk about diversity and, and experience. She's great. She was replaced with a, a former school board trustee from the Catholic school board, a white man, some, you know, a number of years, her senior. So it, it's sort of, it's sort of mind bending to think that you know, you're, you're prioritizing diversity and you're replacing, you know, a, a, a woman, a, you know, a, a gay woman with, also, a man who happened to be one of the Kilberger's former teachers. I was just going to so, say, 
Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the end because uh, uh, Brian Lilly and Post Media has been doing about as much digging as anyone in this country, and that includes you, and you're doing fine work, Justin. Uh, but it, it's the matter of the real estate holdings. Now, there's nothing wrong with uh, companies buying real estate. However, uh, w- what we find is uh, a, 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 a essentially a, a big block on the east side of, of downtown Toronto uh, that could become a future condo development worth about $50 million. Uh, and again, Again, uh, I suppose what's what's perplexing is the the sort of blurred lines between the charity and the the private enterprise involving all of those sponsors, for example, that you talked about earlier, Justin, and their mega mega millions of dollars. So, can you can you unscramble that egg for us a little bit this morning? <laughs> yeah, I can try. I mean, so you know, what does the corporate structure look like? You have We Charity, the charitable organization in Canada. It partners with a corporate side, which is actually owned by a holding company, which actually has like six subsidiaries. Then you have, you know, uh, two different foundations. It's not entirely clear what they do. That's just in Canada. In the U.S., you're talking about three or four different charitable organizations yeah. and another possible for corporate for profit one. So actually figuring out who owns this property is sometimes a shell game. Um, you know, they have they have bits of property kind of just hived off the different organization. No one single corp- corporation or charity owns all of it. So it's really hard to tell what they actually own. For a time, they used to own a bunch of townhouses in the east end of Toronto where they rented out to their employees. That's how, at some point, that stopped. We don't really know what happened to, the, to that financial transaction. Um, you know, there is property that has not been developed yet. There's property that they, they rent out um, for, you know, excursions. There's property they have registered to corporations in Ecuador and Kenya and so on. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is impossible to say what their actual real estate holdings are. And that's what it comes down to, you know, at a really fundamental level, your charity, you owe your, your donors a level of transparency. Why wouldn't you just come out and say, here are all the properties we own. Here's what we're doing with them. Now, we says, you know, they, they own a lot of this property as basically a, like a nest egg, a financial sort of rainy day fund. Sure. In case something goes wrong, they can mortgage it or remortgage it, um, which is fair. But, you know, it doesn't explain why they own some of the property they do. They actually have been given some of this property as gifts. They're not always transparent about who those gifts are from. Um, and just very recently, we actually found out that, that some of those donations came with strings attached. So they, they, some of them still had mortgages. So uh, we had to maintain a positive cash flow uh, or else they'd be in breach of their, of their donation agreement. Then we found out that they'd been in breach of their donation agreement. So mm-hmm. the whole idea that it's a, a rainy day fund, but they didn't have the positive cash flow necessary to pay for the mortgages, that's alarm bells right there. That says a lot about, I think, the financial health of the organization. We disagreed with that, but it's not a good sign that they didn't have enough, um, you know, they, they were not enough in surplus to cover their mortgage payment. Justin, that, is, that is really concerning. Yeah, I'm almost out of time here. Are you at all confident that the hearings uh, undertaken by a couple of committees of the House are going to discover and unravel this even more, or is this going to be left to people like you? You know, I think at a certain point, you know, we have seemingly recognized that there's a problem. They've undertaken a review of the corporate structure. Uh, they promised to get back to basics about inter- on international development. They promised basically to not hold any future we days um, for the next little while. We schools are going to go online only. They're no longer going to do in-class um, teaching. I think those are all good signs. They've, I think, heard and recognized the criticism and are transitioning. Um, I don't know what else is left to come at the committee hearings. You know, at a certain point, I, I, they are still a charity. I still do think they do good work. 
I'm not sure it's always necessarily helpful to keep kicking them while they're down. Uh, I think when you look at financials, you can often draw a lot of conspiracies that well, are always there. I'm not. I'm afraid. Well, I'm. I'm afraid yeah. I'm out of time, Justin, so we're just yeah. going to have to rely on you to continue doing the very fine work you're doing and do not take your foot off the accelerator for one solitary second until you're satisfied you're at the bottom of it all. And we'll talk again. Thanks for this this morning. Thanks. A town that has had a lot of heat in uh, internally over the past few weeks is a favorite of many Vancouverites. We're talking about Portland and uh, the situation they've had with riots and uh, disturbances and now uh, recently the introduction of, uh, shall we say, um, un identifiable federal agents into the mix. Uh, with us this morning from Portland is the managing editor of the Portland Tribune. A pleasure to welcome Dana Haynes to the program. Dana, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Glad to do it, Sterling. It's good to have you, Dana. So it's been quite crazy. Let's let's chalk a little bit, just to set the picture up for us. Vancouverites know Portland, Dana. It's only six hours down the road. We drive down there a lot, or used to be able to drive down there a lot, and like it a lot. And and it's it's as a city, it's not sort of uh, known to be a, a, a sort of bubbling cauldron in which anything will set it off and over the top it goes. It doesn't have that kind of reputation and yet for the past what couple of months now it's been that kind of city why yeah we've had 57 days of protests and they have waxed and waned in in their intensity uh the really important thing for uh your listeners to know and i gotta say just for uh full disclosure that my mom is from banff and calgary and my grandma my grandmother was from vancouver so i know the area well oh good the thing to know is that the grand majority of Portland is as peaceful and calm as it ever was. Last night, my wife and I took a nice, wandering, meandering little walk into an area called the Pearl District, had a lovely dinner, got some ice cream, sauntered back. And there's a three-block radius in downtown that is a bit of a war zone. It is really, really bad. It looks terrible. It's been graffiti-covered. There's violence every night there. But it's a three-block radius. Um, the rest of Portland is the rest of Portland. Now, do we have broken windows around here? We do. Mm-hmm. Do we have graffiti? Absolutely. But the violence has been maintained to that very, very small, contained, isolated area. So it was like, in the sense, the same sense that uh, Seattle had that uh, Chop and Chaz area of Capitol Hill that was a very about a six square block area that was isolated. The rest of the the rest of the city was very normal, and, and eventually that got resolved. So it's the same kind of isolated uh, event uh, occurring uh, night after night after night. That's exactly correct. And the other thing to know is that there's been very large crowds of righteously angry people who are very concerned about um, centuries of systemic racism and who really want to see some change. And they have come downtown night after night, crossing bridges, on marches, listening to speeches because they are accurately and rightly angry. And a lot of the national media down here in the States has focused only on what happens after that, when a smaller and more violent contingent then sucks all the oxygen out of the media room. Um, we, we're, not, we're not hearing quite as much about the much, much larger, much more righteously angry group than we are about the, uh, the advocates of mischief 
who at, at about right around midnight start setting fires. Yeah, Dana, you're a media guy. Is the media doing a responsible job? I mean, you watch Fox News, and it is that you might as well be looking at Kandahar for crying out loud, and and uh, some of the other media outlets, the non-Trump stations like CNN and MSNBC, are uh, doing equally vigorous reporting of what's going on in that uh, that central spot in Portland. Are they doing? Portland a disservice by reporting what's going on there and not letting the world know that this is really just happening in one small area. The rest of Portland's just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah, I always like to say that um, uh, while I I am as quick to blame media as the next consumer of media, I also want to say that you have to be, in this day and age, a really good consumer of media. Uh, It's much like cereal. If you choose to have only Captain Crunch, you're going to see the effects of it. But if you choose to eat healthy breakfast cereals you won't so if if all the media you're getting is media that wants to inflame the situation then you're probably hearing really really bad reports sure then again i'm i'm reading the new york times and the washington post and the la times and i'm seeing very accurate and well described articles so if you're looking for good media you can find it if you don't really care about it if you're looking for more salacious media lord knows you can find that as well the one thing we did roll our eyes at down here is that we'd all been covering this night after night after night i've been sending reporters and photographers there ad nauseum and then uh, when the federal troops made things much much worse all of a sudden um, our 24-hour news stations down here, like CNN, said, well, we need to roll up our sleeves and go see what's happening. Right. And we wanted to say, you could do that, or you could read the local media, and we'll tell you what's happening. But um, I'm always a little, I'm always a little um, uh, uh, stunned when the, the 24-hour news stations decide they need to come see what's happening when, well— there, there are folks here on the ground. We, we'd be glad to tell you. So what about uh, in Seattle, when, and back to that, the occupied zone in Seattle, we, we did learn eventually through media reports about the people who live there, who have businesses there, who were trying to make a living during a pandemic while all of this stuff was going on. And of course, to, with to limited, if, if any, success at all. What about in Portland? Uh, and, and eventually in Seattle, people just said, enough already, just, just fix this. Now, you published an editorial about a week ago saying, essentially the same thing dana you said you and your editorial board said for crying out loud fix this it's been a week has anybody done anything yeah um we did we we published an editorial that said it was time for the local leadership to uh take matters into their own hands and find a strategy yes we've had a lot of infighting we've had a lot of bickering amongst our local leadership uh so we last sunday uh, we took them to task and said it's time to get together and to lead We're not going to ask anybody to stand down. We're asking everybody to stand up. Uh, After that, the mayor of of Portland contacted my publisher and said, you know what, you're right. I should be down there and I should be listening to the righteously angry. So Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, went down on Wednesday. Um, Because we had called him out, my publisher and I went with him. Uh, So we were down there listening to it in in the middle of the scrum as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he, he, when he tried just talking to the really, really angry crowd about People within three meters of him could hear him, but anybody farther out could not. And it was a screaming match and a shoving match. Later, he got a loud hailer, one of those bullhorns, yep. and he got up on a pedestal. And when he actually started talking about some of the policies, you could hear people saying, oh, well, that's the thing I want to see happening. That's good to know. Um, you could see the dynamic changing a little bit within a small sector of the group. So what we told the leadership is doing it, going down there, breathing in some tear gas like that, 
that was a really good first step, Mr. Mayor, but it was only a first step. You do it once in its, in its political theater. Do it night after night after night in a more controlled venue, like saying one of the predominantly African-American churches on the on the um, uh, east side of our t- town and doing it with all of the city council, doing it with our county commission, doing it with a, we have a regional government called Metro, doing it with the Metro electeds, doing that night after night after night will actually change the dynamic and bring it around. Now, will in- they do that? We've seen no evidence of it yet. Interesting. Dana, uh, the uh, press secretary at the White House yesterday said derelict Democrats don't protect their people. That's why Trump's troopers are all over downtown Portland. You've already said they exacerbated the problem. They they elevated the problem because people who knew they were coming showed up looking for a scrap. When's that going to end? Well, uh, that's a that is a good question we can't answer because um, the governor of Oregon, uh, her name is is Kate Brown. She said she was never informed by the feds that they were um, beefing up their troops, and she didn't know about it until these fellows with um, uh, without any insignia uh, on their and there's a court case now because of that, right? Yeah. She didn't know about it. Uh, the mayor of Portland said he didn't know about it. The feds showed up and said, we're going to bring peace. And you got to, at some point, sort of admire the honesty of the White House saying over and over again, we're going to do this to democratically controlled cities. Yep. I mean, at some level, I guess I would appreciate the fact that they're admitting it's a, it's a political campaign and not a law enforcement campaign. The things in Portland had been calming down on a fairly predictable pattern. People were getting tired of it. They were tired of showing up. So the crowds were diminishing, 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 right up until the feds arrived. And that threw gasoline on the fire. And it's been distinctly worse since they got here. Interesting. Well, we'll there'll be a court case and hopefully that will help uh, resolve the matter. And maybe the local leadership will get a little more active themselves. Dana, thank you for this. Uh, Excellent reporting. We appreciate it very much. Uh, Can we uh, call upon you again as this situation continues to unravel i told my mom i was on canadian radio she's as thrilled as possible (laughs) glad to do it again well then we'll just have to give you another gold star for mom too here thanks very much dana very uh, very good reporting and, and good to speak to you this morning we thank you Always a pleasure, Sterling. Dana Haynes is the managing editor of the Portland Tribune. And there you go. That's the latest. And it does not appear to be resolvable, say, this weekend. Hi, it's Shauna. And I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan. And I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.